I am going to eat your soul and shit it out, Westmickey! Oh, you only murder boys. I go both ways. Hello, and welcome to You Should See the Other Guy, the podcast where we usually watch a rom-com, sometimes we watch a romantic tragedy, sometimes we watch a comedic horror film that features a choice of romance between at least two options, and then we criticize who was chosen and why. I'm Jennifer. I'm Samantha. And I'm Sadie. And today we are talking about the 2007 film Jennifer's Body, which has recently enjoyed a a critical uh, resurgence, I think, judging from my social media feed. It actually came out in 2009, which I was surprised to find looking this up because this movie has a much more 2007 vibe to me apparently Diablo Cody wrote it in 2006 so Mm. that all makes a lot more sense like thinking about it but 2009 (laughs) it could be the only good movie to come out in 2009 certainly the best (laughs) 2009 movie we've done on the podcast so far and its competition is The Ugly Truth I believe so no 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 high bar to clear This movie was so underappreciated at the time of its release. Yeah, the 2009 was not ready for Jennifer's body, but 2020 is ready for Jennifer's body for reasons we'll discuss, but I will summarize it briefly and then we'll get to chatting about it. Jennifer's body is a tragic queer horror movie about a girl named Anita, aka Needy, aka Amanda Seyfried, and her hot best friend Jennifer, played by Megan Fox. Needy is more loyal to Jennifer than she is to her classic high school Adi's boyfriend, Chip, blowing him off at the start of the film to go to a local bar with Jennifer to see the band Low Shoulder, who sound like they could have been on the Spider-Man 2 soundtrack. (laughs) Needy Needy overhears the band talking about whether or not Jennifer is a virgin, which seems pretty sus. But before that whole (laughs) confrontation can come to a head, the band starts to play, the bar lights on fire, and the band takes Jennifer away in their creepy-ass van. Later that night, a blood-soaked Carrie-esque Jennifer shows up at Needy's house and she eats an entire rotisserie chicken, then throws it back up and her (laughs) vomit gets all spiky, which seems, again, pretty sus. And then she almost bites Needy and runs away. So Jennifer seems pretty fucked up, right? Wrong. She shows up at school the next morning (laughs) looking like a classic Adi's hottie, acting like nothing's wrong. She's totally blasé about everything, including the tragedy at the local bar. And then after school, she eats the high school football captain in secret. And uh, (laughs) Low Shoulder has apparently gotten mega famous off the tragedy a month later. So at this point... It's clear that Jennifer is a succubus. She needs to feed pretty regularly. So when Jennifer starts looking pale again, she decides to eat the goth kid, Colin, while Needy has (laughs) accurately high school level sex with Chip. R.I.P. Colin. The emo kid, Colin. Oh, we, we can't classify him as goth. 
Tell me no, the difference. The, the we are solidly into emo territory by the time this film was made. The Fallout Boy posters on the wall, the the hot topicness of the attire. It was not thrifted. It was definitely purchased at a mall. The particular styling of the hair. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose a goth kid wouldn't be like rocking along to like a, a punk cover of "I Can See Clearly Now the Rain Is Gone." That's a little too chipper for goth, but, but right on target I... for emo. But I could be listening to a pop punk cover of I Can See Clearly Now the Rain Is Gone. <laughs> and Sadie sure has that's... a lot of emotions. <laughs> sure that song has a shorter name. What it is, who can say? <laughs> anyway, while Needy is having sex with Chip, she can sense Jennifer murdering Colin in an abandoned development, which, you know, clues you into how strong their connection is. So Needy goes out looking for Jennifer, I think hits her in her car or something, and Jennifer goes jumping off the roof and running away. Then later they meet up in Needy's bedroom for some surprise smooching, which Needy doesn't understand and pulls away from. Jennifer explains that Low Shoulder tried to sacrifice her, but she wasn't a virgin, so she became a succubus. Needy is not down with her best friend being a vampire and gets a little obsessed with the mythology of it. Chip doesn't believe Needy about Jennifer, so they break up. And then the night of the school formal is our big climax. Jennifer intercepts Chip on the way to the formal, starts, you know, laying down the moves on Chip so that she can eat him. And then she maims him in an abandoned swimming pool. Uh, Needy shows up and fights with Jennifer and they have a big shouting match about their friendship and Jennifer is lunging at Needy to kill her when a dying chip slouches up and stabs her to death with a pool skimmer. Needy then gets her revenge on Jennifer by showing up in Jennifer's bedroom later the following night, maybe sometime, and then uh, stabbing her to death with like a silver steak. Was that the weapon? What was the weapon? A box cutter. A box cutter. A box cutter. It's for cutting boxes. Definitely a box cutter. dialogue. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my tits. (laughs) (laughs) Do you buy all your murder weapons at Home Depot? You're so butch. So Needy ends up in the mental facility that we saw her in at the start of the film. We learn that she's got some superpowers because she survived a bite from Jennifer and she escapes the mental facility and kills Low Shoulder over the closing credits. And that was Jennifer's body. So tell tell me about your history with it, because I saw it for the first time in quarantine and for the second time just now, but you both saw this in 09, question mark? Yeah. Go ahead, Jen. (laughs) All right. I saw this movie in September 2009 when it was released. At the time, I was almost precisely the age that Sadie is right now. Oh, (sighs) yeah. I liked it. I actually really liked it when I first saw it, but I was also confused by it and had a lot to puzzle out that I was also puzzling out, you know, about my own history and my current feelings and whatever was going on with me at that time. And I remember being kind of irritated by the pacing when I first saw it, which did not seem to be a problem to me at all now. So I'm not really sure what has changed there. But I remember kind of feeling like a lot of the jokes dropped just a beat too late when I first saw it. Hmm. 
this would have been the point in my evolution. I had been out of high school for five years and had evolved in my conception of other women pretty much solely as idols or rivals and started to discover Mm. feminism and had made a more solid group of female friends at the time, although the dynamic was still very different than healthier friendships and friend groups I would develop as I grew older. And yeah, um, I have a lot more to say about this that I guess my brain just doesn't want to put into words yet. So I suppose we will just keep talking and maybe they will arrange themselves. How about you, Sadie? Sadie, I'm surprised you were able to see this in 2009 at age three. It's pretty (laughs) disturbing imagery. (laughs) Yes. Well, my dad is a big horror fan. And so when this movie came out, he was really excited to go see it. So I had to go see it with him. And I was pretty excited too, because listen, Megan Fox is hot. We can all agree. I was 13 when this came out. I was not three, Samantha. (laughs) But you guys, I'm just so sensitive. (laughs) This movie was too sad. I remember I was in the theater like crying. Like I cried. During this movie, it was so, I wouldn't even call it scary necessarily, but it's definitely sad. (laughs) This movie is sad, you guys. It is. And it's it's more sad to me than a lot, because I watched a lot of horror movies in my childhood. I watched a lot. And for some reason, this one really struck me as really sad because they're in high school and before all of this happens, Jennifer is like, she's not a, we don't get to see a whole lot of who Jennifer is before this happens. And I think that she, she had so much more to her and like, she had so much more life to live, but then it all got cut short by this group of assholes that wanted to sacrifice a virgin, which is a really good metaphor for asshole in real life. And also Needy's life was ruined as well. She had, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but she had a really good partner in Chip, whether or not they would have stayed together. Very sad that he dies. Very sad that Colin dies. His death scene always makes me really depressed. So yeah, me watching this as a 13 year old, a lot of the larger like metaphors and symbolism and like, you know, relating it back to just like what teenage girls go through that went over my head. But I did know that it was spooky and it was sad. And so that's why I avoided it until like (laughs) a year ago when my friends made me watch it again. And then I was like, this movie actually is very good, but it also is just as sad as I remember it. So I'm going to avoid it for the rest of my life. And then we decided to do it on the podcast. So I didn't keep that promise to myself. (laughs) (laughs) And here you are, sad again. I hadn't seen this movie until earlier this year. And so I guess when it came out, you know, it wasn't very well received. I think that was at a time when I was refusing to watch anything that didn't have above an 80 on Rotten Tomatoes or something. I was like, (laughs) annoying like that. And so I dismissed it along with everyone else who I think was dismissing what Megan Fox was up to post Transformers. And 
I think also just to move into like general feelings about the quality of the film, I like am not super wild about like Diablo Cody's screenwriting. I think like she's very like talented at, at structure and capturing these certain like like teenage moods and that kind of thing but i don't like the forced slang in both juno and this where characters are like don't be such a vacuum hose derek or like they're just like making up like things that you know they don't say and it's very stylized and as a result like some sometimes it doesn't feel like the characters have their own voices because they're all just like talking in the same like affected way and that works Mm -hmm. for me in some movies but in jennifer's body it doesn't really work because i like it's it's such an emotional movie almost like in spite of itself sometimes that like i want i i crave moments where they kind of like tone down the little like cute insults and and neologisms to let the pathos of it shine through yeah there's there's the one part that i both love but also wish was different is um when needy stabs jennifer with the box cutter and jennifer says my tit I I think that that's such an like yes. a funny line, but I always whenever I watch this movie, I always think that she's going to say something more than that. It just feels like it's such a climactic point that it's both funny that they decided to go with something so superficial and not meaningful at all rather than something different. So I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, no, for me, it's like the more understated moments in the screenwriting are like the more hilarious ones. And then when I can feel Diablo Cody trying to be like, here's this like cute, funny phrase a character would say, it turns me off a little bit. So like, you know, saying my tit instead of like, oh, you squished my chest pillow or, you know, like whatever, like, like <laughs> uh, uh, the like cutesy way of saying it in Diablo Cody verse would be like it's funnier to me and my favorite line along those lines is I think Jennifer is like talking to the high school football dude after his friend has died in the fire and she says I'm crazy sorry for your profound loss I I, I love that line Agreed. It's sort of, yeah, some of the more naturalistic phrasing really works. And that's how I feel about it. I love the, it gives me kind of the the laugh, half sob, gasp, you know, with the matit line. And I think that that would have been more profound. I mean, it, I, you know, but it, it's like leading up to that. It's almost like it's a race to cram in five more jokes while they're having the final fight. Yeah. Like the whole reason that Needy stabs Jennifer with the box cutter is so that they can make a, you know, a weird vagina joke and then toss in a line about, you know, alluding to Needy being attracted to Jennifer again. And it's like, they're literally battling to murder each other at this point. Like, we, I don't know. It's like, it was a little yeah. like, do we need this dialogue? But I, I, I felt like the one of my favorite is when uh, uh, they're fighting in the pool before Chip dies and Jennifer is is hovering up above. She flies out of the water and is in the air or whatever. And Chip is like, holy shit, she's flying. And Needy's like, oh, she's just hovering. And Jennifer is like, yeah, <laughs> like, why are you always? He's undermining me like you <laughs> and, and because I feel like even though they were joking there that really did like bring a more 
I, I liked it when the jokes led into saying something about their patterns yes. and the, the way, you know, about their relationship rather than just being like, this is a box cutter for cutting boxes because I think you are a cunt. I mean, yeah, yeah, there's so many like that pool scene is genius because it's like the female best friend breakup plus more, which I think we'll dive into pool pun intended. But like, it's also, you know, about a succubus fighting her best friend while her boyfriend like dies on the floor. So like that to me is like, you know, emotional horror comedy at its best where it's like this ridiculous horror scene, but then it's saying something really relatable about life and friendship and love at the same time. And it's, it's so genius in those moments that like, you know, that I, that I wish that some of the other dialogue weren't like trying as hard you know and I get that instinct like as a as a writer when you're like I'm worried it's not that good so I want to like get in a little more jokes or a, a little clever sentence here when if if you kind of stop, stop take a step back from it and and have some more confidence in it you can see that it's like it would be fine without the like you know, calling people dick cheeses and like all the other what stuff. What was that like? Did Diablo Cody have children by then? I don't like, I thought that didn't come till later. Like why that little girl just popped in out of nowhere. I guess just to give context that Chip has a younger sister who calls him a dick cheese in the middle of like another emotional moment. So I, <laughs> I don't know. That yeah. one was a mystery to me. Also, Amy Sedaris was kind of wasted, I thought. Like, she appeared for, like, 30 seconds to eat some bread and then disappear. (laughs) But, yeah, the the script is so, like, genius in moments. Like, one of my other favorite lines is when Nikolai, the front man of Low Shoulder, says, like, it's so hard being an Andy band these days. Unless you go on Letterman or you get on some soundtrack, like, you're fucked or whatever. And, like, those are... Those to me are like Diablo Cody genius, like at its at its best. Yeah. I will say, and, and of course, like we are, <laughs> we are three writers, uh, three uh, bisexual women writers who are struggling a little bit with the emotions that this movie makes us feel. So naturally, here we are spending however many minutes nitpicking the writing instead of like actually talking about the content. <laughs> But I will say as a criticism, I just want to go ahead and get out of the way up front that even though I remember enjoying this movie in 2009 and in in a way that was it was not perhaps broadly received in popular culture at the time, watching it again in 2020, though, I was shocked by the racism that just flew right in front of my eyes and I didn't pick up on 11 years ago. And now I'm like, wow, like in the very first opening of the movie like needy makes some nasty little grassy ass comment to like a hispanic man and then she kicks a a black doctor in the face and makes her lose her teeth and then what the they have like an indian exchange student character presented at the bar like presumably for no reason other than just to get in a weird like circumcision joke and then he becomes uh we don't find out till later jennifer's first victim Uh, you know like it it seemed like a lot of the non-white people in this movie either had violence done to them or had you know there were specifically racist jokes or comments about them and it, it was it was just it was shocking 
Like, I can't believe in hindsight that I that didn't ring off on my alarms in 2009. I was also shocked by the amount of times the R slur appeared in the dialogue. I am pretty sure oh, by 2009, I, <laughs> I knew that the R word was not the thing to say. So that, yeah. oh, so, okay, that's my yeah. big Biggest criticism. Oh, I was going to say, I feel like maybe another reason why I felt like it was a 2007 movie was because of like the, the like 9-11 jokes in it. And yeah, it felt like it was taking place almost in that like 2003 period where people were like making 9-11 jokes and weird jokes about brown skinned people and like in a way where it's like, I'm trying to be ironic, but maybe I'm also just being a little racist, like... Kind of vibe, you know, like 30 Rock esque in its approach to that. I feel like in, like at this time, like in high school, these like slurs, like R word and everything, it was still so mind numbingly common. So disappointing to remember and think about. But yeah, that was all I was going to say. Shall we, shall we pop the seal on the emotion Ooh. of this movie? This, this. Almost. tragic bisexual love the, story well, maybe this will take us right into the emotion but samantha i too felt extremely early 2000s vibes from this and it kind of and watching it again now it sort of made more sense realizing that this was written and directed by uh, gen x women and you know kind of like who had the life experience to sort of look back at some of the the references like the phil collins thing and the tony robbins like workout videos or whatever. I don't know. John Basedow was the one we always joked about in our basements in 2003. But the low-rise jeans, the styling, it was so 2003-2004. Like, yeah, it really put me there. Which is, I think, part of the reason why it makes me feel emotional. Yeah, yeah. I mean, gosh, what a tragic arc for Jennifer. Not not Jennifer, <laughs> you, Jennifer. <laughs> Jennifer. The, the character in this movie because I don't know it's interesting to me to tease out how much of this was like intentionally written as a queer story and how much of it was about the intensity of friendship and then raises questions about how much that distinction even matters but looking at it through like 2020 queer eyes it it feels like a story about not Megan Fox's character coming out as a succubus, but Megan Fox's character kind of descending into queer monstrosity and needy, uh, not willing to follow her into that arena and clinging to heteronormative, like, you know, chip, like as... Jennifer kind of descends into queer like amorality and and to me that scene in the bedroom which I think played to critics is like oh this is like titillation it's two hot young actresses making out feels like this tragic moment of Jennifer being like come on we can still play like boyfriend girlfriend like we used to like you know it feels like a moment where Jennifer is approaching her like hey, let's like do this together. And Needy's like, no, I am not going to be a succubus. And uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I I felt that too. And I also think that it's 
darkly funny that Jennifer doesn't feel that it's, I guess, safe to act out on, you know, to act out her own queer desire on some level or to reveal that level of uh, vulnerability to needy until after she is already a monster. Like, you know, like she she has killed people. And so only then is she willing to maybe cross the line into kissing her friend. But then you have Needy is clearly fucking in love with Jennifer from, from the beginning. She's getting called out as lesbian gay in the first mm-hmm. little flashback scene. And there's a strong, I guess that's why this is a bit confusing to talk about because the time period, like the early 2000s sort of time that this, this reads is being set in, even if it came out in 2009, was this god awful like Paris Hilton celebrity era of... <laughs> It, it was a bad time to be a young bisexual girl trying to figure mm-hmm. out your body and your desires and your place in the world and the sources of your power and how you could affect things and situations around you and how, <laughs> well, and, and, and trying to avoid realizing how powerless you really were all at the same time. It was just like a really terrible era of cognitive dissonance that I do not wish upon anyone who didn't have to live through it already. Sadie, what is this well up in you? Let's, I feel like we're at a consciousness raising group. Uh, <laughs> just uh, <laughs> bearing testimony of Jennifer's body. I think that it's such a, well, first of all, it is such a complex movie. And I think it's so good because of that. Um, and there's so many ways that you can read it. Like, I do think that they're both queer. Um, but they also, I don't know if they necessarily are romantically into each other. I don't know if I don't I don't know how how that would have played out if, for example, um, Jennifer had continued to exist as a as a human girl, and they would have gone off to college together and, and figured things Sadie, out like that. I have thought about this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let, let me say, let me say, and then, and then you can either reaffirm me or burst my bubble, whichever um, ends up happening. I, 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 for one, <laughs> don't know if that would have necessarily happened. I don't think that um, Needy would have stayed with Chip. I think that they would have stayed really good friends, but. I think that Needy was going on kind of a, a queer journey, you know, and I think that 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 Jennifer would have been part of it. But where was I even going with this? I got lost thinking about the relationship. They just have that really, you know, intense, wild relationship that you have when you're two girls and one or both of you are queer and you're trying to figure things out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially in a super patriarchal heteronormative setting where queerness Mm -hmm. is kind of off the table as an option. And so these feelings and desires and relationships get twisted into some, like, I absolutely, I realize that we're supposed to be arguing for the other guy or other girl as the purpose of this podcast. Needy and Jennifer would actually be absolutely horrible partners. They are in a terribly toxic, codependent, obsessive relationship, you know, Oh, you know, and I I have thought about um, what would have happened if the sacrifice hadn't happened. But anyway, I'm watching this today. I want to mention this first before I get into my speculation, which Sadie, I I agree with you. No bubble bursting shall happen here today. But... uh, 
I was also thinking about, I feel like the first time I saw this, I lost a little bit of momentum because the movie overshoots that that magical hour and a half movie mark that we like so much on this podcast. And mm-hmm. I didn't understand why they couldn't just wrap everything up in the pool house scene. Why Needy had to become the predator and go to Jennifer's house to murder her. But then uh, watching it again, I felt that that was really important. That switch of roles and who was, uh, who was hunting and hunted and, and what was happening there. So I I spent a bunch of this afternoon reading essays that made me think about it and whatever. And Lindsay King Miller of ask a queer chick fame. I, was remembering that I had seen her tweet about this essay that I had not read until today, where she's talking about the relationships between uh, Buffy and Faith on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Eve and Villanelle on the first season of Killing Eve. Mm -hmm. And which also both, we're not talking about the second season, which I haven't seen and doesn't exist of Killing Eve in my mind, but how the Eve and Buffy and, and Needy here end up going going to the object of their desire and frustration and anger's home and penetratively stabbing them in bed to kill them. You know, that it's such a... So anyway, I found this essay very fascinating and that this is such a uh, trope about uh, like thwarted expressions of queer desire in women maybe throughout things. But I loved this line that I'm going to read to you right now that she said, to be a queer woman is often to lust after your shadow self, to find over and over that who you want overlaps uncomfortably with who you want to be. And Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's it with Needy and Jennifer, right? Chip is saying at the bit, he's like, you guys have nothing in common. Needy is like, I don't do what Jennifer tells me. We just like all of the same things. And Chip is like, no, you guys aren't alike at all. But the thing is, Needy wants to be like Jennifer. (laughs) So yeah, I feel like I'm talking for way too long and I need to cede the floor to somebody else. But I definitely think that if Low Shoulder hadn't turned out to be murderers dabbling in Satanism, that Needy would have gone to college to study something, definitely started to explore her queer side there. Jennifer would have moved to the city where she clearly wanted so desperately to be and become a bartender or something and lived her life and had all kinds of weird sexual experiences with all kinds of people. I feel like Needy and Jennifer eventually would have definitely had at least one sexual encounter with one another when they were like back Mm -hmm. in town for Christmas or something. But since the foundations of their relationship were already so codependent and toxic and badly interwoven, I feel like it would have either been amazing or terrible sex and either way ended in explosive, terrible emotions that either would have wrecked the friendship or left them, you know, as more casual acquaintances or... Yeah, yeah. Then they they were to start. <laughs> I feel like, a, yeah, I don't think they would have ended up together in the long run, but I think that they were definitely absolutely vital to one another's development. But this was all robbed from them by evil, twisted, ill-doing men. What was it that, that Needy says about Adam Brody as Nikolai? She was like, he was all skinny and evil and twisted like a tree I saw when I was a kid. Yeah, like a petrified tree. Yeah. <laughs> And what a what great casting, by the way. Adam Brody is amazing in that yeah. role. When he says, <laughs> Jennifer is like, where are you taking me? And he says, 
you don't have to talk if you don't want to. I fully lose it every time. It's such a great line. But yet. Oh my God. The vibes of douchebaggery that just emanate from his face. Like, give the man an Oscar for this role. Yes. You know, uh, Jen, it, it wells up so much. Part of it is like, part of how I read it as a queer text is that when you're told by society that your desires are wrong, that who you are is wrong, that what you want is wrong, and then you allow yourself to cross to the other side of that and embrace who you are, you kind of develop an overall attitude of like questioning the things that society holds sacrosanct. Because if society is the one that told you you were evil and wrong, then what else is society wrong about, right? And so to me, the way that tracks onto the film is after Jennifer becomes a succubus, you know, Needy is always trying to like rope her back into some sort of perceived humanity of being like, well, aren't you sad about the fire at the bar? Or don't you care about this? Or don't you care that this person has showed up murdered? And Jennifer is just, you know, like blase about all of it. And I think it's like on one level, just supposed to be funny, like, haha, she's a monster now. But it it also to me is sort of like about queerness and like allowing yourself to embrace being in society's shadow. And so part of the mm-hmm. tragedy of the movie for me is that at the end, what we get, we get that like killing Eve-esque like sublimated, I'm attracted to you, but I'm gonna like stab you thing. But it frustrates me for the same reason that killing Eve does, which is it's about a character holding on to, you know, humanity and morality as socially defined punishing the queer character Mm -hmm. and then you know needy becomes like a supernatural avenging badass but not like a jennifer-esque one like her cause to kill low shoulder feels like a very like moralistic almost like you know christian crusader like satanic panic one where she's gonna go out and kill the satanists with the powers that she got from the succubus (laughs) or whatever and to me, like it's tragic because Jennifer is is dead and that queerness doesn't doesn't even survive in the movie in like a shadow form in needy, you know? Yeah. 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 Like needy just took what her I'm the shit for getting attention and kind of yeah, rolled with it without and uh, God, that was uh, I love that you mentioned that though, about Needy's quest for vengeance against Low Shoulder, which is strange that Needy has been in lockup for two months before I maybe she just couldn't levitate until then. I don't know. But the that that Jennifer doesn't have grand enough ambitions for herself to actually attempt to take revenge on the specific men who murdered her. She she really is only sees herself as capable of going for the low-hanging fruit in her town, you know? Like and sort of enacting her revenge on the patriarchy that way. Well, I I I think that it's both like when they sacrifice her, they both give her these terrible powers. And so it's, it's thrilling for us in the audience to watch her, you know, it's kind of like, sometimes I in high school wish that I could have killed some of the boys that I went to high school with, you know, and so there's kind of this 
thrill of just like seeing her do that and not face any consequences. Like she's not chasing the boys, they're chasing her and she's killing them. But at the same time, Low Shoulder robbed her of her ability to like think critically, really, and like recognize what she's lost or do anything about it. She's kind of become a cool, supernatural, super strength monster. But at the same time, she's also become kind of one dimensional and not really able to think about anything more than just eating, sleeping, killing. And feeling really good after she And feeling really good. Yeah. Yeah. But Needy is the one that she, the only one that she forestalls herself from eating, which is yeah. like the ultimate compliment. And I think the ultimate expression of her love for Needy is that mm-hmm. like yeah. even fresh off being turned into a succubus and who knows how hungry she eats a Boston market rotisserie chicken instead of eating Needy. Yeah. And that kind of like intense love, maybe like not romantically, but just the way that Jennifer truly does love Needy reminds me of Ginger Snaps. I know that you've seen that movie, Samantha. I don't know if you have, Jen, but just kind of that like comparison of just like how, you know, that the quote, how is a teenage girl and just like the parallels between like girlhood and like being a monster and like being vilified and this kind of like terrible scene where the sister kills the older sister because she's a werewolf and she's going to kill people and then she's like sobbing over her body. Spoiler alert to Gender Snaps. <laughs> it came out 20 years ago. If you haven't yeah. seen it yet, I don't know what to tell you people. <laughs> Gender Snaps hits me in that exact same spot where like I mourn the loss of the like transformed monstrous character. Yeah. And and yet movies like Jennifer's Body or Gender Snaps or frustratingly Killing Eve season two, I'll feel the need to kind of like come back around to like the non monstrous character, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When like Jennifer's loss is so great, like that's the real horror of it is like she makes, you know, she, she makes this one, you know, she trusts these guys. And then because of that, they ruin her life and it causes so much pain for her. It's sad, you guys. <laughs> it's so sad Sadie it's so sad she's such a tragic and sad character even before they they go when they go out to Melody Lane to go see this band play that's what Jennifer thinks is gonna be great excitement or something cool she doesn't really have you know her her even after she becomes a monster her best day is just strolling in slow-mo down the hallway in school feeling good while at you know after she's eaten a man, she she likes to conceive of herself as having so much power when she needy's nervous about talking to the band and, you know, oh, we can, you know, oh, they're just boys. They're just morsels. You have all the power. You have the, you know, with a, like telling needy that her boobs are like, you know, that this is what, and that was so the attitude. That's what we told ourselves to get through 2003 while we were being, <laughs> 
exploited all the time. Jennifer is she she has had sex, uh, you know, and she presents herself in a sexual fashion, but it doesn't seem to be in her pre-succubus state to be about her own gratification in any way. It's it's just about her social standing and how she feels it can secure her power and influence with people. Everything that she says it sounds negative or, you know, she she mentions it being very painful to have butt sex with Chris Pratt before he gets burned uh-huh. up in the fire. And yeah. And then just the misunderstanding with Needy tell you know, I mean, they would have moved on to another town. By the way, can we talk about how horrible, but how fucking appropriate it is that these f- low shoulder douchebags go to a town specifically with the intention of trying to find a virgin to sacrifice to Satan. But they're such fucking lazy half asses. They do not even do their work first. They literally just pick the first girl who comes up to try to flirt with them. This is, if this is like 2009, even if this is 2006, like Facebook was majorly a thing by then. Like the era of MySpace had already passed. If they really wanted to sacrifice a virgin to Satan, they absolutely could have identified and catfished some poor innocent soul and had all this set up perfectly. But did they? No. (laughs) One out of 10. (laughs) for their their effort I think we can all agree the most horrific parts of this movie are one Chris Pratt and two uh, Chip opening a condom and saying slippery swirl it's supposed Uh. to make it feel good for the girl I guess Oh my God. And when Needy is having the flashes to the terrible murder of Colin, who I think that we all collectively can agree that we love emo Colin. So his death was sad. And, (laughs) and also, I mean, Needy again, like she, she kind of had a nice little thing going with him. She was already with chips that she was not going to break up with him for Colin or anything. But the only reason that Jennifer went for Colin was because Needy liked it. So Needy, He's having these flashes to his terrible murder and and vocalizes about that a bit during sex with Chip. And and he is coded as one of the better characters through much of this movie. But God, and that's, I guess, again, why it makes it so sad when he kind of gets a little smile and wonders if she's having this freaked out trauma reactions because he is too big while they are intercoursing. (laughs) Boo Chip. We can at least fulfill the purpose of the podcast by saying Chip Chip makes me cringe so hard. He's the classic, and this is the third time I'm going to say Audis in this podcast, but he's the classic Audis like high school guy who's like, I don't really care about anything, but I also care about everything, like not being emo, not being goth, not being preppy. I just need to be some like perfectly like mediocre specimen. I just, okay. Like devoid. Oh, do we have a chip defender in the podcast? We do have a chip (laughs) defender. I don't even know. If it's like fair to say definitively who is the other person in this movie, because like the relationships between both of them are given so much like technically she's with like Chip as her boyfriend, like in an official sense, but she's been having this like emotional affair with Jennifer for years and like it's so intense. But I like Chip. I think that just purely based off of their 
like interactions and also just like his general vibe he seems like a good dude and he seems very emotionally stable he's definitely less toxic than jennifer even like you know pre this is all pre-succubus just like from what we know about her so just based off of like how he how well he can treat needy i like chip i was i'm sad when he dies (laughs) i cheer his death i (laughs) applaud his death i clap when he dies oh my god well uh okay i am a little bit in the i'm in the middle more a little bit more on the Sadie side, maybe, but a little glint of the Samantha in my attitude toward Chip. But before I go into further detail about this, I must tell you guys that also in my reading today, I saw the fact, a little factoid, that originally they were going to cast the actor who ended up playing Chip as Nikolai, as Adam Brody's character. No. Oh, yeah. And that yeah. would have been, yeah, like, what? I'm sorry. That hair, he was doing his little, you know, his 2007 swoop or whatever, but I just can't see it. Like, Adam Brody was that character. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. The douchebagness of Adam Brody. I mean, love him. I'm sure he's a great person, but come <laughs> on. <laughs> well, that part where they were like sort of stealing themselves, like about the virgin sacrifice and the ritual, and they were like, Maroon 5. Like, <laughs> Fucking destroyed me. But Chip, like, yeah. No, I'm with Sadie that I liked... I liked Chip and Needy's interactions when they were alone, pre-Succubus, you know? They seemed like they had a nice little vibe going on. I liked their, uh, you know, if it hadn't been interrupted by Needy's telepathic connection to her, uh, you know, Succubus best friend love of her adolescent life, she would probably would have had a good first sexual experience with Chip. But I was being a little bit of a Chip apologist myself, talking about the movie with my partner right afterwards and he pointed out which I cannot shake that I've got some beef with Chip though now for not believing Needy about Jennifer's possession like the very first time when you know Needy confronts him at school about it yeah I can see him being a little bit salty and dismissive because he you know he got woken up in the night about and like there there was a fire and Many people they knew died, but Needy's only concern is about Jennifer. It's all about Jennifer, you know, like he he just had his date blown off for this and whatever. But even his body start piling up and Needy's trying to tell him this, he really blows her off in kind of a, a, a you know, like a God, what is it like benevolent patriarchy or, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like a nicey way. But, and I feel like <laughs> this movie, the men are such other than Nikolai who really has his moment to shine the men are very very much side characters in this movie but they uh, many of them do represent even when they're kind of innocent like Colin well and then the Indian exchange student who was entirely innocent and so I kind of discounted him from this because of that and now my mind is reminding me and I'm on a train of thought of that that but anyway but like the football player and stuff they're all kind of representative as sort of still upholders of this patriarchal system of oppression that Jennifer gets to tear down at a little bit just by their existence even if they're not meaning to just by acting normal yeah 
I mean, I'm outnumbered by the chipologists, which is my <laughs> my Diablo Cody esque neologism for chipologists. Uh, what are you guys both? A couple of Doritos defending Chip. I, this is my attempt to write Diablo Cody dialogue on the fly, and it's not going well. And it's giving me more respect for Diablo Cody's neologisms. Anyway, Samantha, um, you're just lime green Jello that we like, Chip. <laughs> I I mean I think I think the source of it is this. I don't think I'll say you should see the other guy to the extent that I think Needy and Jennifer would work as a succubus human pairing and perpetuity. But part of the tragedy for me is that like Chip okay, when Chip is dying on the floor of the abandoned swimming pool and like Needy and Chip are having this little moment of Chip being like, I think you look really hot in your poofy dress and Needy is like, you're clearly delusional and it's supposed to be this like sappy kind of like romantic moment between them. I feel like nothing, you know? Like <laughs> because they're having this tender scene that like it doesn't feel that earned to me, or at least their relationship is so much more one-dimensional than Needy and Jennifer's relationship. And then when Needy is killing Jennifer, we don't we don't get. I feel like the movie would have been much better with some like moment of deep pathos interspersed yeah. against the comedy of killing Jennifer of like, you know, needy, like killing Jennifer while shouting, like, I loved you or something like that. You know, like I, I'm not a screenwriter, but there would be a way to like inject some like deep yearning, mournful emotion into that. And you can still do your little Home Depot butch like box cutter jokes too, Mm -hmm. if you want to. I think they'd pair well together. So I won't say you should have seen the other guy, but I will say you should have had your tender death scene with your best friend instead of with your kind of dime a dozen high school boyfriend. I will, I can, I, I'll back you up on that. I think there should have been more weight to Jennifer's death scene, to their interaction there. And yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like they were getting there with the a lot of the dialogue in the pool scene because Needy's yelling at Jennifer, you were never a good friend to me. You used to do these mean things to me when we, even when we were kids. And Jennifer's like, well, at least I'm consistent. Now I'm eating your boyfriend. And then Jennifer yells the thing about how Needy is undermining her. And you see that there's this weird even though it definitely comes across to you know at a surface glance that Jennifer is very much the dominant one in the relationship and seems to have all the power I feel like that 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 statement about needy undermining Jennifer's accomplishments or whatever really sticks with me that I think that they are both seeking each other's approval so much and and needy probably does undermine Jennifer's whatever she's doing because she thinks oh she's so beautiful and great and you know, gets all this attention anyway. So she kind of blows her off maybe at moments where Jennifer was really seeking Needy's approval. I don't, this, yeah, this is a tragedy. This is not a horror. This is a tragedy. It is. Yeah, the pool scene was so good. And I wish that the Jennifer's death scene had like taken that same tone. Instead, it felt like the movie pivoted hard into like, let's just punish Jennifer for something that like what happened to her against her will anyway, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
That's why I feel like her death, her death should have been much more trash. Like again, as much as the line "my tit" is like a really funny thing, like the last thing that someone says before they die, it's also like an anticlimax. Like I needed more from it. I needed the same level of like emotional intensity. It felt like most of the movie didn't really like it could have gone more campy and left out like the depth. Or it could, like, I just wanted a little bit more intensity because it felt like it was trying to say a lot of stuff, but because it wanted to also fit in tons of jokes and, like, never really go deeper than that, it just kind of. I'm not saying that it's not a cinematic masterpiece because it is, but I wanted it to be more intense. I wanted the death scene to really just be this, like, an emotional, intense moment between these two really intense emotional characters with this intense emotional relationship. Yeah, it, it it's a fantastic movie. It is a fun movie to watch and rewatch, but like it just doesn't quite stick the landing for me in that way where I would like cherish this movie forever as a queer masterpiece, you know? I don't yeah. know. Like it it gets so close to it, closer certainly than any big budget movie in the 2000s mm-hmm. ever did. But like, I don't know, I would, I would, part of what it makes me think of is I've been watching The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix, mm. which is a follow up to The Haunting of Hill House adaptation on Netflix by my favorite horror director, Mike Flanagan. And part of what I love about Mike Flanagan's work is he realizes that like horror is like a a sponge that can soak up a lot of sentiment and feeling before it becomes too much, you know, like you can, you can do a lot of like really sentimental, like emotional content in horror. And it's always going to be like, have a nice contrast or counterpoint with the um, like shocks and the scares and the jumps and the slow mm-hmm. creeping terror. And in fact, the more you do of both, the more they play off of each other. And I feel like that's a lesson that could be applied to like Jennifer's body is I feel like, like there might be some concern of like, Oh, we need to keep the tone light or we need to keep the tone campy. Or if we make it too much about the friendship, then like young men aren't going to go watch this movie because they just want to see like, you know, guts and gore and Megan Fox being hot or whatever, which I think is something that happened with this movie was they were very conscious of trying to market it to like young men in the two thousands. And And I think the movie could have withstood and indeed benefited from so much more emotional dialogue about their friendship on top of what they've already got in there. Yeah, both Diablo Cody and Karen Kusama, the director, have spoken afterwards about the disconnect between their vision and attempt for this movie and then what happened with the studio and especially what happened Mm. with the marketing. And I remember this very vividly because it's funny, I I don't know that I would have seen this movie in theaters if it had come out in 2007. I was I was ready for it in 2009, you know, but again, like I was talking about what I termed the the Paris Hilton 
celebrity era where there were lots and lots and lots of paparazzi tabloid pictures, upskirts and nip slips were really rampant in supposed celebrity reporting. You know, it was a it was a really nasty time. Like Perez Hilton had started up already. Celebrity gossip blogs were a very different beast then. And so this was sort of the celebrity, the the pop cultural reporting ground that Megan Fox was born into as as a um, she's my age and I remember absolutely fucking loathing Megan Fox when she first appeared oh. on the scene oh vicious hatred like and this is for a few reasons in part I was still in that era of my life where I hadn't really learned about you know where women were idols or rivals and Megan Fox was very heavily marketed to us the reading and viewing public as the new Angelina Jolie, who uh, I idolized mm. um, at that age and um, did not see. And and I suppose, actually, I would say that the biggest reason is that I still, like age 20, 21, wasn't really at a place like I was getting very angry at patriarchal standards about what I felt that I was expected to look like and be like, but I hadn't really figured out who to best appropriately direct that anger toward, if that makes sense. So when Megan Fox appeared in Transformers and the way she was marketed to the public and the way she was covered on these blogs I was reading at the time and stuff, it felt like there's your new standard. You need to look like this or you're shit. Like this is the, you know? And so I, I definitely felt, ah, I, I didn't like a bitch, you know, at the time. I didn't realize that we were, we were all in this uh, terribly warped game together. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how this movie was marketed so much. But by 2009, I had learned a lot more. I had made new connections. I was able to sort of see this in a, you know, oh, maybe Megan Fox is also, uh, you know, a victim in the system trying to tread water as best she can, like myself. And, and then I loved her performance in this movie. It's incredible. So in a way, and I'm sure there's been a reading done just like this. I'm sure there's some essay by someone smarter than me who said the same thing, but like the movie itself is almost kind of a metaphor for Megan Fox's career of like used by a studio system for her sexuality and for her body. And then uh, just kind of killed off like leaving this complex like bisexual character except we're talking about a real person like just on the floor and then moving on without like fully appreciating her depth of talent or like Mm -hmm. any of her interiority because it's clear like I not only mourn the death of Jennifer the character I mourn the kind of roles Megan Fox like could have been playing after this if she were acting in a system that was not like Hollywood as constituted Mm in the 2000s and the 2010s, you know? Like, she is so good, so, like, pitch perfect in the comic moments of this movie. (laughs) She's so good in this movie. Like, she's perfect. Like, beyond just, like, the way that she looks, which really, like, she really just has that, like, succubus like 
you know, kind of mean, catty, but also could murder you vibe. But she's also just such a good actress. Like, truly, she's, as you said, her comedic timing is so good. And she really nails the, like, you instantly know that she's a different Jennifer before she is killed. And then after when she comes back as a succubus, like, she plays it so that it's like Jennifer wasn't a perfect person before, but she was like a real person. And now afterwards, she's just clearly lost and is this demon. Yeah, which takes like a lot of subtlety because this the succubus she is after, at least when she's fed, is similar to how she was before, but just like turned up 25%, mm-hmm. you know? And then she also has to do the anemic, like lethargic, I need to eat somebody kind of Jennifer. Yeah. So she's got like three different, you know, energy levels that she's got to perform over the course of this movie. And, and it does so very convincingly and expertly. Oh, Samantha, Sadie, that part is, I think it was just there to be, you know, a joke and to make Jennifer seem even a little more self-centered and loathsome than we already thought she was. But it stabs me like a fucking box cutter to the heart when she's in terrible low energy mode after her you know her first kill is wearing off and she she needs to feed again uh maybe more intentionally this time and and she's and needy is like no offense but you look tired like are you all right and jennifer's complaining that like i my hair isn't shiny. I'm breaking out. It's just like I'm one of the normal girls. And that's funny. Like, the, you know, I think you're supposed to laugh at her from like the haha, she's in the. But again, maybe this has, I don't know, this makes more sense if you came of age in 2003 in this terrible cultural time trying to absorb who you're supposed to be. But it's not just that she like it looks down on the normal girls, I guess. It's that she knows that women, that the normal girls are so despised that her only <laughs> source of of power and, um, you know, hope of having a good life is to be like literally like supernatural to not be classed as what she is which is a teenage girl i don't know if i'm explaining that well but god it just kills me this is a sad movie sadie you called it sad movie well and speaking of sad um really quick we still have one other other guy to really quickly we mentioned him earlier but colin 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 needy should have been with colin Absolutely. fucking Yeah. That was kind of out of left field when he asked Jennifer out. He was obvious, like he was interested in Needy, like respectfully, but he hoped she was okay, you know? Whilst realizing she was with Chip. Colin just wants to be close to death, but not that <laughs> close to death, apparently, that he actually dies. And that's the tragedy of Colin, is he swirls like a vulture around Needy when he finds out that she was at the scene of the bar tragedy, and then he can sort of sense that Jennifer is undead and he wants in his emo way to get really close to that energy but then he doesn't want to be torn to shreds in an unconstructed suburb poor Colin I next to Jennifer which is just kind of an ongoing tragedy um his is the saddest death I agree I'm okay with almost everyone else dying in this movie except for Jennifer and Colin and I guess the exchange student who really doesn't seem like he deserves any sort of 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing about this movie is like, no one really deserves any like, you know, the main villain of the story is a victim herself. So and like the, the real villains low shoulder, we don't see for most of the movie except at the very beginning and the very end during the credits. Yeah, but that's what I like about who Jennifer kills is like, I get theoretically, no one deserves it. But like, she's a succubus. And that's who succubi eat the way that you know, predators eat their prey, like, that's just who she is, right? You know, and it's, it sort of reminds me needy going all like, you know, Christian Avenger at the end that like, what is the one is it Dexter where it's like he's a serial killer but he only kills people who have done really bad things mm-hmm. or you know yeah like Pass it went m- off the miss me with that well, stuff wait wait two. wait 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 did you hear that there's going to be a re- another it's going to continue yes Dexter? i logged on to twitter right before we started yeah. this so like what, what the i fuck, don't even want to know when they blow um, up dokes uh, that was when i was done with dexter and lila miss me with that shit okay we'll do our dexter podcast later <laughs> sorry sadie continue no i just colin is a really sad death for me like it just it feels really upsetting because I know that Jennifer needs to feed and she's looking forward to killing him and eating whatever and she set all this up, but neither of them really want to be there. Like Colin is immediately scared and he's just going through with it because he likes Jennifer, whatever. And then it just, it, it feels like they're both being forced to be there for different reasons. The patriarchy. So it's just sad. Yeah. He can't leave because even though he is like a more sensitive and emotional kid than the football player, he still feels like compelled by like the oppressive man code to have to go through with this and find her. And she didn't really want to choose him in the first place. She really only did because she's trying to get it needy more. Yeah. And she has this desire for needy that she thinks if she can consume the things that needy wants, that, <laughs> you know, that will somehow say that. And so that's why Colin's death gets even more tortured because she knocks him around a little more and tells him she needs him scared and hopeless. And Yeah, it's sad. Yeah. Is this movie also about the death of emo too? Or <laughs> You know, I think so. But, you know, so I thought that was funny, right? Because Jennifer is super duper into low shoulder and defending them to Sergeant Chris Pratt. Uh, with their eyeliner and stuff. But Jennifer is into indie bands and she is <laughs> she is very uh, derisive towards Colin and his emo aesthetic, even though superficially they are very, very similar. Like Low Shoulder was like dressed like the hives or something. They were all wearing like slim pants, dress slacks and, and button downs with and, and like with a little, a, a slight bit of subtle eyeliner instead of Colin more a couple of years behind the big city times emo fit yeah i i they sound i was reading some article about like what their sound is modeled after and this is just one of those pitch perfect like movie bands where they've like really nailed the sound to the point where their song is like something i would genuinely listen to stripped from the context of the movie like it sounds dashboard confessional-esque you know Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Dashboard Confessional, I feel like, is kind of like the daddies of emo. Like the <laughs> the peepaws of uh <laughs> 
herring everywhere all over us. Yes. Oh, that, <laughs> that when Spider-Man 2 ends and you hear about your hair being everywhere, screaming infidelities, I'm like, all right, let's go. I mean, the emo, <laughs> emo music isn't that great sometimes. And I know the scene wasn't perfect, but at least it was from a time when people could like express feeling directly through music instead of wrapping themselves in seven layers of like irony and references uh, to like try to convey an emotion. You know, this is just occurring to me and maybe I'm not uh, up enough because I I was like one of those millennials who like idolized uh, Gen X and was trying to listen to their music. So I was like heavy into like Tool my latter two years of high school. But emo was also quite dominated by men, was it not? Yeah. Like mm -hmm. they could talk about being sensitive and having feelings, but it's still all dudes who are out there trying to get laid with their young, adoring groupies. Like, <laughs> yeah, so. that's what was rewarded about it. And meanwhile, you have someone like Liz Fair who's out there, like writing like really raw, honest, great music, and you know, not like yeah. being ap applauded in the same way for and being then, so vulnerable. It's just expected. Yeah, like I didn't even like learn about Liz Fair until I was almost thirty. You know. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Sadie, do you know who Liz Fair is? No. Wait, 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 wait. Before you put this in the in the It's too podcast, late now. It's going in. Yes, I do know who this is. I do know who this is. <laughs> Sadie, where were you when Spider-Man 2 came out? Were you born yet when Spider-Man 2 came out? I was vibing. <laughs> That's the one with Doc Ock, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Alfred yeah, Molina. Yeah. Yeah. I I loved how old was I when the first Spider-Man came out? That was a movie that I had like on VHS or whatever, and I would like watch it over and over again. I feel like that should be the millennial, like where were you when JFK was shot? Where were you when Spider-Man 2 came out? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, I was that I've ever watched Spider-Man 2. Alfred Molina. Oh, it's like, I'm not a super fan of the comic book movies, but Spider-Man 2 is like a genuinely great movie. And I have a, actually a funny Spider-Man 2 story. This was 2004. I was in high school. This would have been a time when I was going to midnight showings of movies instead of being on my couch. And so there was some like, Jackie Chan hot air balloon adventure movie that was out at the same time as Spider-Man 2. <gasps> Around the world in 80 days. <laughs> yes. So I was, oh. in, I was in this midnight showing for Spider-Man 2 with all the other Spider-Man, you know, Sam Raimi fans. Yeah. And we were all gearing up and the trailers start and the trailers are like weirdly matched. They're all for like kids movies. And we're like, what is going on this doesn't seem like the kind of trailers you would play before spider-man 2 and then the trailers stop and around the world in 80 days starts playing <laughs> and everyone is like what the projectionist had put in the wrong reel on and had to go back and do it but we all had to watch a different set of trailers all over again so by the time spider-man 2 started playing it was like fully one in the morning <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha 
Yeah. Well, I I'm love... never going to have that experience. <laughs> I love when movies um, just fuck up, like movie theaters, and they put like the, the wrong thing in or whatever. I remember in... Um, 2007 so I was 11 years old my parents and I went and saw Firehouse Dog starring Josh Hutzerson <laughs> and we oh my god PETA <laughs> Firehouse Dog you heard me it's a cinematic classic are these three words fire comma house comma dog <laughs> no Firehouse Dog Firehouse okay. Dog and I was so so excited <laughs> to see this movie and we got like 10 minutes in and then it just stopped playing and it we waited there for like 10 minutes and then someone got to the front and they were like y'all we don't know what happened but we can't play this for you anymore so come back next week i guess and i was inconsolable I don't know why that's just <laughs> in hindsight would it have been better to have only experienced 10 minutes of a movie called the firehouse dog <laughs> we'll never know because <laughs> you didn't get the comparison did you and ever finish think, that i don't think so <laughs> my parents were like this was the one shot sorry we can't do this again <laughs> <laughs> They're like, whoo, we got out of that one. <laughs> oh, I did eventually get to rent it at family video. <laughs> I'm sure, but <laughs> I need we well, need to go? know what Don't the remaining yeah, 100 minutes of Firehouse Dog were like. <laughs> I can't even remember. I think that he Oh my god. <laughs> Never mind. I just looked at the plot summary. <laughs> Anyway, I looked is... at it. I looked at it long <laughs> enough to see that the eponymous firehouse dog is named Rex with three X's. With three X's. Like we're talking like Xander Cage, Vin Diesel level. Yeah, X's triple X for this firehouse dog. <laughs> Now, oh. speaking of a cinematic classic, Firehouse Dog sounds like Trump's cognitive test or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> the woman camera TV thing. No. <sighs> well, should we rate? <laughs> not, not Firehouse Dog, but Jennifer's Body, the movie that we're here talking about. I or Spider Man Fire- 2. <laughs> Spider Man 2. I'll rate all three. Spider Man 2. <laughs> Um, Spider-Man 2 has five Kirsten Dunst Snaggletooth out of five. Yeah. Firehouse Dog gets zero fire hydrants out of five for me, just based off the title alone. Jennifer's Body, <laughs> I will give it um, four tubes of lip gloss out of five. Really great movie, and and I love it. I I will give I will give Spider-Man to eight robotic tentacles out of five. Great movie, love it. <laughs> Great rom com. Um, I give Firehouse Dog ten Firehouse Houses out of five, <laughs> and I give Jennifer's Damn. Body um, four bloody pools out of five. <laughs> Because it's it's just such a good horror tragedy. 
And it's so well done. And it's so much funnier than I think even the writers could have thought it would be. And it just has a lot more depth to it. And it is one of the great queer horror movies of the of the century. Agreed. Well, not having seen it, I will not rate Spider-Man 2, but I will rate Tobey Maguire, who I fucking hate, by the way, Spider-Man <laughs> 1. You're going to do Seabiscuit's jockey like that? <laughs> oh my God. Don't talk to me about Tobey Maguire and his awful little face. But I will still rate the first Spider-Man five out of five wet tank top wearing red wigged Kirsten Dunst running down an alley to weirdly kiss Tobey Maguire because that movie gave me that imagery forever and made me want to dye my hair red, which I eventually did. And it was all right, but it was actually a lot of upkeep and I had to draw my eyebrows on every day. And it didn't make me feel as good as just the scene of watching Kirsten Dunst in that moment made me feel. So I will give it that. Firehouse Dog, I don't think could possibly be good as, good as the children's book about Pickles, the Firehouse Cat. So sorry, Firehouse Dog. <laughs> you get you get one, go read Pickles instead. And Jennifer's Body, I give four of five confusing, very arousing, also distressing makeouts with your codependent childhood friend crush who is now a succubus. <laughs> An excellent choice of rating. Uh, Jen, where can people find our podcasts? What should they do to our podcast? Well, people (laughs) can find our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever they listen to podcasts. And they can find us on Twitter at YSSTOG, where they can leave us comments or GIFs and We'll get really excited and talk to him, and that would be great. Also, they can email us, or Sadie, actually, more specifically, is the mistress of the email at, what is it? YSS. Don't say it. <laughs> it's almost Sadie, as haunting a, a sequence of words as firehouse dog. Daddy comes home. <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad that I've haunted you with that forever. But that said, Sadie, tell us about the email now because sometimes we get really good suggestions through email and that's why we watch the Philadelphia story, which we greatly enjoy. You can email us at yssTOGpodcast at gmail.com and I promise that I will be checking it more often because we have wonderful listeners write in sometimes and I don't see their emails until like a month later. But we see them eventually, and I love them, and we cherish them greatly. Yes. And also, give us five-star ratings on anything that's rateable, unless you dislike us, in which case, just don't. Yeah. (laughs) I like anything that's rateable. Like, go scrawl your review on, like, a fence post somewhere. Like, anywhere you could rate it. (laughs) Oh, my God. If... There was YSSTOG graffiti. I would lose my mind. Please Samantha. take pics of you defacing. That would be fly. <laughs> gonna fly to Tennessee. <laughs> and I'll just start tagging bridges near you, Jen. Please to do, delight you. Please. <laughs> Besides, best friends don't keep secrets, right?